ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Good morning and welcome to AM. It's Tuesday the 28th of November. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. There's been a major breakthrough in the negotiations between Israel and Hamas with an agreement to extend the temporary truce in Gaza for another two days. It was set to end later today. However, Israel's leaving no doubt that it intends to resume fighting in the Gaza Strip at some stage. Correspondent Adam Harvey is in Jerusalem. Adam, how has this extended halt in the seven-week-long war come about? Well, aid agencies in the United Nations and a lot of other people have been pushing for it for days now. Hamas said that it was willing to extend its ceasefire to find more hostages. And now Qatar, Egypt and the United States have all confirmed it. We think that there'll be more groups of hostages coming out as part of this extended ceasefire deal. It's possible that around 90 people fit the category of uh, hostages who can come out, the elderly, the women, children and the ill. So with around 50 people coming out so far, possibly another 40 could come out over the next few days if this ceasefire lasts that long. But you know, Israel really is champing at the bit to push on. We've had the Defence Minister Yoav Gallant telling troops, saying that the intensity of what happens next will be greater and it'll be all over the Gaza Strip. So he's removed any um, doubt that the Israeli forces won't be going into South Gaza as well. So he's told troops that while you've been resting and reorganising, Hamas has been doing the same. And he said that... uh, Hamas will meet the bombs of the Air Force and then the shells of the tanks and artillery and then the scoops of the D-9s. It's not clear what this is going to mean for the 1.8 million people who've already been displaced in Gaza by this fighting. A lot of them have gone to the south and are sheltering in UN schools and places like that. They don't really have anywhere else to go now uh, if this fighting extends into south Gaza. And Adam, what's the condition of some of the Israeli hostages who've been released over the past few days? A couple of the hostages are in poor shape. One in particular, 85-year-old Elma Avraham. She's ventilated and in an induced coma and her family are quite upset because they say that they tried to get her medication to her while she was in uh, Gaza. They tried to pass it on to the Red Cross and and, uh, who would then give it to Hamas, but no one would take it and they think that the lack of the medication means that that she's in this condition now. Maya Regev, who's the 21-year-old who you might have seen hobble out of Gaza on crutches, Uh, she was kidnapped from the Nova Music Festival. She's had bullet fragments in her legs for 51 days and she's now had surgery to remove those bullets from her, her legs. She's doing okay. But her 18-year-old brother, Itay, remains in Gaza in an apparent breach of a deal to bring family members out together. That's our correspondent, Adam Harvey, in Jerusalem. In the United States, the Biden administration's welcoming the extension to the pause in hostilities in Gaza, but cautions it comes with potential risks. And it says it's still working to secure the release of a number of Americans who are believed to have been captured by Hamas during the October the 7th attacks. North America correspondent Barbara Miller reports. 
President Biden has been marking a long holiday weekend with family, but his team is keen to stress that without his involvement, the two-day extension to the pause in hostilities in Gaza would not have been agreed. National Security Spokesman John Kirby. The president has been deeply engaged on this process throughout the Thanksgiving weekend. He spoke with the Emir of Qatar at a very critical moment to help resolve an impasse on the second day of the pause. And then yesterday he spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu with a focus on working towards an extension of the pause, the extension that, frank, quite frankly, we're seeing today. There is still a number of American citizens believed to be held captive in Gaza and the administration says it would like to see the break in hostilities extended to try and get them out too. But the administration acknowledges there are inherent dangers in that approach. You have to expect a group like Hamas, a terrorist group, uh, which clearly doesn't abide by laws of war, will try to take advantage of any pause in the fighting for their own benefit. So we're watching that closely as well as our Israeli counterparts. You can, you can bet that they're watching that closely. And I don't want to speak for uh, the Israelis, but, I mean, this is a, a calculated risk that Prime Minister Netanyahu and his war cabinet are willing to take in order to get those hostages out. So it's a, it's a balance. When Congress returns this week, lawmakers will be under pressure to finally deal with a supplemental budget request from the president for more aid for Ukraine and Israel. Some Republicans want more scrutiny of the aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel could be held up by calls from within the president's own party to make it dependent on certain conditions being met. Joe Biden was asked at the weekend what he thought of those calls. Well, I think that's a... A, a, a worthwhile thought, but I don't think if I started off with that, we'd ever gotten to where we are today. National Security Spokesman John Kirby was left to respond today. What he also said, right after uh, acknowledging that it was a worthwhile thought, was that the approach he has chosen to take so far has produced results and outcomes. Amid a surge in Islamophobic and anti-Semitic incidents in the U.S. since October the 7th, a 48-year-old man has been charged in Vermont with attempted murder after three young Palestinian men were shot while out walking. Police are investigating whether the attack constitutes a hate crime. And outside the White House, a reminder of the tensions here with a group of activists and state legislators joined by actor Cynthia Nixon in staging a hunger strike calling for a permanent ceasefire. You know, we've seen in the last couple of days what happens when there's a ceasefire, how hostages can be returned and political prisoners can be returned and... Uh, humanitarian aid and water and food can, can come in. You know, we can't bomb our way to peace. Some of the groups say they'll refuse food for the next five days unless their demand is met. This is Barbara Miller in Washington reporting for AM. It's a decision that sent the Albanese government scrambling and later today the High Court will explain why it recently ruled that some convicted criminals had to be released from immigration detention. About 140 former detainees, including murderers, sex offenders and drug smugglers, have been freed. And once the High Court publishes its reasons, the government might find it has to release more people. Political reporter Evelyn Manfield explains. When the High Court reveals its reasons for upending the immigration detention system, the government could be dealing with another legal and security curveball. 
Senator James Patterson is the Shadow Home Affairs Minister. Unfortunately, it is quite possible that more people will be released. We're up to 141 people who've been released and the Solicitor General told the High Court that a total group of up to 340 people could potentially be released. The government fought against these people being released and after the court's initial ruling, it rushed emergency powers through the parliament, allowing authorities to use ankle bracelets and curfews to monitor the former detainees. The government doesn't have a plan to get them off the streets. All they have a plan to do is to monitor them while they're in the community and we are concerned that some of these people could re-offend when they're out in the community against an Australian citizen. Lawyer David Mann from Refugee Legal says he'll be closely examining the High Court's reasons. But what's going to be critical is that uh, with those reasons is to assess how the reasons apply to our clients specifically and this is going to be done on an individual basis. We're going to have to look at the circumstances very carefully. Um, what that will allow us to do is to assess uh, on a case-by-case basis whether anyone who is still detained uh, may be able to um, seek release in accordance with the High Court ruling. As it waits for the High Court's reasons, the government's also trying to mop up after another decision, which found it was invalid of the former government to revoke the citizenship of dual nationals convicted of terrorism offences, now giving that power to a judge. To make citizenship stripping a sentencing option in a number of serious crimes like terrorism. Luke Beck is a professor of constitutional law at Monash University. While the government's proposing to extend citizenship stripping to cover foreign interference and spying offences, he doesn't think too many people will be affected. There's very, very few people who are in this situation to whom these laws will actually apply. A lot of this is really for political effect. It's political theatre. You have a situation where Somebody might be a dual citizen, but they've lived in Australia most of their lives. And so some people might say, well, these are bad guys, but they're our bad guys. And on this issue, Shadow Home Affairs Minister James Patterson can see more problems for the government. We're looking at it carefully, but on the surface level, we're very concerned about some of the weaknesses we've identified already in the bill. It doesn't propose to deal with the historical terrorist offenders like Ben Breaker. It only proposes to deal with future terrorist offenders. With the parliamentary year rapidly drawing to a close, the government is fast running out of time to respond. Evelyn Manfield there. Customers left without phone and internet services during this month's nationwide Optus outage are being asked to have their say as part of a review. The federal government's released the terms of reference for its inquiry into the incident that affected about 10 million customers and blocked hundreds of emergency triple zero calls. Our business correspondent is Peter Ryan. Peter, what's this review aiming to achieve and what does it mean for Optus's already tarnished reputation? Well, Sabra, this review is more than just a blame game that we saw in the brutal Senate hearings in the wake of the November 8 outage, and which saw Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin resign as Optus' chief executive just a few days later after enormous pressure. Now Optus is looking for a new CEO and trying to rebuild confidence in customers who are liable to switch. Now, what the review wants to achieve is lessons for government and the broad telecommunications industry, which, like Optus, is constantly exposed to the risk of network outages, but also criminal cyber attacks that Optus experienced a year ago. A major focus will be the triple zero emergency service, which went down with no backup, risking lives with 200 calls blocked. 
So what changes are needed to ensure continued access to triple zero? What changes to regulation might be needed? The circumstances where other networks like Telstra or Vodafone can step in to provide support and the interaction between carriers. Telstra, which was very quiet during the outage, said it would be too expensive and not practical to be the national backup. But of course, that could change when this review reports at the end of February. And Peter, will the review look at whether the compensation Optus is offering is adequate? Well, the review to be run by Richard Bean, a former Deputy Chairman of the Australian Communications and Media Authority, will look at compensation processes and whether they were adequate. Rather than offering cash compensation at the time, Optus offered 200 gigabytes of free data, which angered customers even more. So the review will look at whether the processes were good enough, whether the handling of customer complaints by Optus was up to scratch. There won't be public hearings but Optus customers will be able to make submissions so they can have their say. The inquiry is almost certain to be inundated given the level of public anger about an essential service that failed and how that can be prevented from happening again. Peter Ryan. Do you worry about how much information the big tech companies are collecting about you and what they do with it? Or do you feel locked locked into particular products which are often pre-installed on our devices? Consumer Watchdog thinks new laws are needed to rein in how companies like Amazon, Apple, Google and Meta are reaching into our lives. Any guest prepared this report. Just say, hey Google. Play some music. Rain or shine, Alexa can help you plan your next adventure. Hey Siri, play dance music everywhere. It's never been easier to find information, products and services. But privacy expert Dr Catherine Kemp from the University of New South Wales says the information is flowing in more than one direction. So you might use voice assistant and smart home devices, media streaming, um, fitness products, and some of your data will be necessary to provide each of those services. But the ACCC is pointing out that these platforms are combining data they collect from your use of all of those services. The Consumer Watchdog, the ACCC's latest report from its ongoing inquiry into the dominance of digital platforms, canvasses the risks posed by the expansion of companies such as Amazon, Apple, Google, Meta and Microsoft. So that Combined data can help them to potentially protect their market power and develop highly detailed profiles on each individual consumer, which won't always be in the best interests of the consumer themselves. And that can also be done by discouraging consumers from using products outside a particular digital platform. Erin Turner is the chief executive of the Consumer Policy Research Centre. In reality, big players are limiting our choices. We have less choice than ever. And they can be using our data against us. They're collecting a lot of us, a lot of it. And what do you say to people who say, well, it's convenient. Um, I don't have anything to hide. I'm not worried about my data. There's a real risk that they can cause harm to competition, other small businesses, particularly in Australia, and to consumers. 
um, in ways that mean that we'll pay more for products and services or we'll face manipulative tactics like um, subscription traps where it's really hard to get out of products and services. So she welcomes the ACCC's recommendation for laws mandating codes of conduct aimed at preventing anti-competitive behaviour. It's a really important consumer protection that already exists in a lot of countries like the USA and across the EU. And for me, this report shows exactly why it's needed. The Communications Alliance, which represents some of the digital giants, says it needs to discuss the 230-page report with its members before responding. The federal government opened consultation in September on possible reforms to consumer laws to address unfair trading practices. The period for public comment finishes tomorrow. Any guest there. With every state and territory except the ACT voting no in the Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum last month, it might have seemed like the majority of Australians were resoundingly against reconciliation. But a new survey of voter attitudes towards the referendum run by the Australian National University has found an overwhelming majority still believe Indigenous Australians deserve a voice in matters affecting their lives. And there's also widespread support for constitutional recognition. Nick Grimm reports. Ask a yes or no question and you'll get a one-word answer, which is why the Australian National University's Centre for Social Research and Methods set about quizzing 4,200 voters about the thinking that led to their referendum choice. And I guess what we found is that there is still very, very high support for most of the principles uh, underlying the voice to parliament. Professor Nicholas Biddle is a co-author of the survey. As it tracked voters' views throughout this year, it found almost 90% believe First Nations people should have a voice or a say over matters that affect them. So it's certainly true that the specific proposal was rejected by the vast majority of voters, but the principles are still supported by most Australians. Well, can I ask you this? What surprised you about the findings? Yeah, so I guess just the fact there was such a high level of support for Indigenous Australians having a voice amongst no voters. Uh, So that was a bit surprising. I thought there'd be much bigger difference between yes and no voters. The survey also reveals a clear majority of voters supporting constitutional recognition of Indigenous Australians and that close to 80% support formal truth-telling processes. We cannot underestimate the importance of truth-telling. Linda Burney is the Federal Minister for Indigenous Australians. She says the survey findings can help inform a new national discussion about the future of reconciliation. What I've noticed in this country is that people want to understand the truth. They want us to understand the history. And I think perhaps you're seeing that in the um, outcomes of the survey. We heard during the lead-up to the referendum that there was no plan B for the, the voice proposal. Could a survey like this, though, help to inform the process towards finding something like a plan B? The survey could very well help. That is very true. And uh, let me assure you, There is much work going on in the Aboriginal affairs space and there will be a comprehensive response from the Labor Party in appropriate and good time in relation to the referendum. Well, it definitely says that there needs to be a mechanism for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have a say in matters that affect us. Professor Tom Kalmer is a former member of the Referendum Working Group 
and a co-chair of Reconciliation Australia. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people still need to, and, and this is supported by the vast majority of Australians, uh, need to have a say in policies and programs that impact on us. The full survey results are out today. Nick Grimm reporting. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. Being a renter right now can be pretty stressful, but what you might not know is there's evidence that renting is actually accelerating the biological ageing process. That's according to a peer-reviewed study from the University of Essex in the UK and the Adelaide Uni. Today, one of the report's authors, Emma Baker, on how DNA testing has shown renting can be really bad for your health. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.